0: Lawyer and historian Ron Crosby has a new book called Tecote's Last Foray and he's examining a relatively forgotten period of Te Uruwere history with the help of recently discovered diaries. He sets an historical record straight about a mass abduction in 1870 of 218 Fakatoya people by Tekoti during the New Zealand wars. Ron Crosby is author of books including The Musket Wars. He was appointed to the Waitangi Tribunal in 2011. And he puts the legwork into his research, tramping the roots that he writes about. And he's with me now. Kiora. Kiara. Kiara. Tecorti's last foray. Before we go to the incident that you clarify in the book, just set the background for me. What was Tecorti doing? Well
1: it's complex so difficult to do quickly but i'll try oh, and nice. uh, he'd essentially been wrongly accused uh, in 1865 of um, fighting alongside Pai Mareri, who were being uh, uh, attacked by Crown troops at uh, near Gisborne and um, in 1866, without trial with, uh, and without, se- as a consequence, without sentence, was sent to Farawhaki, the Chatham Islands, together with about 350 other people who were captured at a uh, Hika, and other places near Gisborne and and Hawks Bay, and they they were left. They had to build their own accommodation, etc. Two and a half years They're later, they just dumped there. Just dumped there, and uh, two and a half years later, he masterminded. He'd become quite a spiritual leader by that time. He uh, started developing his own religious uh, theories and uh, he masterminded the capture of the supply ship, the rifleman that was coming out to the for- to the Chatham Islands. They came, sailed that back, landed at Whoreongonga and I believe were intending to disperse and go back to their homes. But they were attacked and they were attacked by settler troops and uh, um, they managed to re- rebuff those attacks. They re- Were rebuff- they all
0: settler troops that attacked them because... Yes, Maori, they were at,
1: at that stage, right. with, with some local Maori, but, but uh, more it was the set Because that's where it gets
0: really complicated, right, because there's lots of tribal rivalries which play out as well as the colonial enterprise.
1: Yes, indeed. And uh, that, that becomes more developed as things go on, because he then gets attacked again in the Rukaturi Valley. He r- responds by attacking Turanganui, which is Gisborne, and carries out a major massacre he kills 70 odd people why ha- why does it half he do of that? them are Maori half of them are Paka he's and
0: doing that part of a
1: part of a utu uh, process because of the way in which he had been treated and uh-huh. and and his people by that stage and uh, uh, his Fokaro, his followers uh, he then gets. He then retreats inland to a hilltop park called Nartapa, and he's besieged there. He receives an invitation from Fokatoya who have been dealt with very badly uh, in, in the Opotiki area by the Crown. Uh, when Volkner gets killed, the Reverend Volkner gets killed there. Uh, instead of looking, the Crown going looking for the killers of one man, uh, they just attack Fokatoya generally and and confiscate. 400 odd thousand acres of their best land. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of them, uh, one of their leaders, Hira Topopo of uh, Ngati Hapu of Fokatoya, takes his people up the Waiweka River about 40 odd k's, builds a park called Maraitahi. About three years later, when he hears that uh, Takorti is at Ngatapa, just over the range on the Gisborne side, he invites him uh, to come to Maraitahi uh, if he manages to escape. He he does manage to escape from Ngātapa, goes to Maraitahi, links with Hiro Topopo and the era people of Fokatoya, and then links with Tuhoi he then embarks on a process over the next year of uh, trying to well he moves over to the Maori King way over at uh, uh, Tokomamotu which is uh, Tiquiti and uh, gets rebuffed by the Maori King because he's pretty he- heavy-handed to courtti at that stage and uh, um, he's rebuffed by the Maori King he Ends up in a couple of uh, clashes at Taporiri, south of uh, Lake Taupo, and uh, at Tumanui south of Lake Rotorua, where he loses large numbers of men. Goes back to Tahi on the eastern Urewera. These are massive trips, you know, I'm yeah. doing this quickly, but they're massive trips. He's at Maraitahi, he's short of men, he's short of gunpowder, he's short of uh, uh, any weaponry, so he, he I think, stages a raid on Fokatoya on the two communities of Fokatoya who've been penned into a reserve area at Opapi and Omuramutu, just east of Opotiki, grabs the whole of those two communities. So they've
0: been penned in by whom?
1: By the Crown. Right. Yep. So
0: is he abducting them or is he rescuing them?
1: Well, it's pretty clear from the contemporary historical record that he was abducting them. Uh, I, nowadays he's, of course, become... The prophet of uh, the Ringatu religion yeah. and Fokatoya, uh, uh, big supporters of the uh, followers of the Ringatu, um, and they, they regard him in a much better light now than uh, than he was regarded at the time. At right. the time, the rangatira of Fokatoya who were at Opapia no Maramutu when he arrived, they fled by boat to a little settlement called Tōreri, just further up the coast, and they were protesting in writing very strongly to the crown about the abduction of the women and children and old men and were calling on the crown to rescue them
0: why did he want 218 young people and
1: well he didn't want they weren't young people they were women children and old men basically right. the young men ironically were actually with the fonga nui contingent pursuing them and uh, so he missed out on the young men i i i haven't postulated as to why in the book, but I I suspect that what he was believing would happen over time would be that if he took the whole of the communities into the bush, as he did for Mm. 55 kilometres, three days it took him, uh, I think he was expecting that in time the young blokes would follow, and that would be his source of manpower. Wow. Uh, But he exposed, really, those 218 people. It was near the end of uh, uh, summer. It was right at the end of March. And winter was looming, and winter in the were is, is not easy, uh, food-wise. And uh, I, I think there would have been serious repercussions had they not been rescued by the Whanganui as they were uh, three weeks later. Three weeks
0: later. Mm. And they were rescued by the Whanganui people, but this is what you've discovered. This is not what was purported to have happened, which is that they were rescued by Ngati Perot.
1: Aye, ah, that's right. And uh, what happened was that um, the two uh, Whanganui rangatira who were involved, who were Tekep at Rangihuanui, well Major Kemp, and Torpia uh, Tūro, they wrote written reports describing an attack on a park called Waipuna. And uh, Porter's account, was, uh, and that was published in the appendices to the Journal of House Re- Representatives at the time, uh, but they were pretty c- brief accounts, and they didn't describe where Waipuna Pa was. Uh, Porter, Lieutenant Porter, who was with the Ngāti Perō, um, he wrote a diary, or purportedly a contemporary diary, but in fact it was written six weeks afterwards, or completed six weeks afterwards, uh, in which he described the Ngati Perot going up the Waiweka River and attacking Marai Tahipa and releasing, and the impression he gave, and then certainly gave in subsequent book writings that he did in newspapers and books, he gave the impression that Ngati Perot released all of the Pokatoya uh, prisoners at Marai Tahipa. Was he with the Ngati Perot? He was with the Ngati Perot.
0: So you're suggesting that he was aggrandizing himself and Ngati Perot's role?
1: Yes absolutely and uh, and then what happened was that I, I I've got to give credit to a, a, a old lovely old woman called um, old woman I've got to be nice uh, nicer about that uh, called Barbara Mabbitt, who wrote an, a neat book and uh, uh, about a um, the diary of a an old relative of hers called Samuel Austin, who, and there were only two Pākehā involved in, in these two contingents. Each of the contingents was about 300 in the case of Ngāti Perot, about 450 in the case of Whanganui. Uh, each of them had a parker with them. One was an officer. His diary, Porter's, got published. The other was Austin. He was with the Whanganui. His diary never got published. Barbara Mabbitt came upon it, turned it into a book, and I read that book subsequently and uh, got in touch with her and she made the diary uh, available.
0: Did you already have suspicions that Austin's was probably going to be more accurate?
1: Well, I didn't know about Austin's diary until I read her book. But, but you'd already but had, suspicions I was, of Porter's account? Yes. Absolutely. Because? because when I, Because when I wrote the Coopaba book in 2015, I had to reconcile the Whanganui Rangatera accounts of an attack on a park called Waipuna, which they didn't describe where it was, and, re- and them releasing all the prisoners and then meeting up a couple of days later with Nati Perot and coming on out and from Maraitahi. Um, and yet, Porter's account didn't mention Waipuna Park at all. And uh, so when I wrote the Kupapa book, I felt a lot of discomfort about it because in 1987 I'd well in fact in the 1970s and, and then in 1987 on my own for three weeks I'd, I'd spent three weeks up the Waiwaka River and uh, I'd never heard of this by Puna Pa myself either but I felt really uncomfortable writing the book in 2015 about Things that were being described as being two different places, right? And uh, so when I read Barbara Mabbitt's book, it suddenly you started to, it, it, the whole of the incidents were dramatic, the areas rugged, and uh, so it was a really interesting thing to uh, explore and follow up. But the only key to where Tucorti took the um, captives from uh, Fokatoya was in Austin's diary. Uh, so to try and prove that uh, we. Followed and it's and walked in their footsteps, and uh, so that involved, you know, a really long, hard walk. bashing, I imagine. Yeah, well, no, no track, and so uh, just literally following his description, saying when you went up this river, you would come to this a spur coming down into the, a, a small creek, etc. You had to go up that long spur, try and get onto a major ridge, follow along that ridge, which is up and down, and uh, it took us ten and a one of the. Chaps with me, um, Chris Gray had a, a fancy watch and it, it records time, height climbed, etc. We we walked for uh, ten and a half hours and um, I think we, I think it was thirteen fifty metres or something, which is, you know, close enough to five thousand feet of elevation that you're climbing, uh, ascending and descending, etc. As you go along, so that is where Tukulti took these two hundred and eighteen people. There would have been hapu, pregnant women. There would have been uh, little kids. Old
0: men. Did they all survive? Yes, they did, yeah.
1: And it just shows you how tough those people were. Well,
0: and you. Yeah. How long ago was that?
1: Oh, yeah, but, I mean, we, we, we did one day. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but they, they took three days to do So it.
0: when you got to whatever Austin described, was there anything there that you could identify as something where so many people could have been kept?
1: Well, initially there wasn't because we needed to... One of the problems was Austin... Did give a description of a what he called Three Rivers Junction. So I had a a point if we could find Three Rivers joining, and you can you can identify those. He then gave a distance of eight miles to Waipuna Par upriver, and when when I looked at that on the map, and and it, it fortuitously ended up in a hut called Nico Flat Hut up the Waikoe, and we and I'd been there in 1987, and I I knew it couldn't have housed a par where. About 300 odd people had mm. to be living and uh, um, for three weeks. They built their own par there and it only list, existed for three weeks. So, myself and uh, Chris Gray walked up there, and uh, when we, it, there'd been very, very hairy rain the night before, and when we got to uh, a particular junction called the Taputo Stream coming into the wireworker, he said to me we should move on out. It was still on farmland at that stage, move on out and have a look at that junction. And I sp- the pack was already getting a bit heavy. I'm on, <laughs> on 73 now. And so I'd, I said to him, well, it wasn't worth it because the river was flooded. We would, couldn't get over to the Te But he and I had been discussing the fact that Tukorti, a number of the statements about Te said that, that was the that Te was a favoured area for him. So Chris said, well, we should go and have a look. So we went over and had a look. And as soon as we walked – there had been cattle brake fed on it. And as soon as we walked through the brake fed fence – you were immediately walking through what, to my eye, and were a whole series of um, uh, forti site depressions, a whole series of them, dozens of them. How and, exciting. Uh, yeah, well, then I took photos... Came home, showed my wife, Maggie, and she, with the usual cynicism of a wife, said, oh, what do you think that shows? And I, I said, well, it's, I'm going to put it in the book. It shows that we've found Waipuna Park." Yeah. And she said, no, it doesn't. It just looks like a flat paddock. <laughs> so, so the next day I was describing that to a mate of mine who called in a retired vet with a good feel for country, Pete, Pete Anderson, and he said to me, well, have you, have you got a, um, a photo of it from the air? And I said, well, I had flown over it with Mark Law, helicopter pilot friend from um, Fokitane and, and a little Robbie, and I'd asked Mark to drop down so I could take a photo up the Tepato stream, and fortuitously, it had a photo, it, it captured just a, that, that terrace opposite the stream. And Pete said to me, well, have you blown it up? Because we, we, we had a look at it. He said, let's have a look at it. I showed him the photo. And didn't show anything. And he said, "Have you blown it up?" And I, I said, "I hadn't." And he said, "Well, blow it up." So I blew, enlarged it, and as you enlarged it, these photosites just stood out, as well as a number of lines, uh, which I, and I took the photo the next day to um, Dr. Athel Anderson, who's to be prominent New Zealand archaeologist who now lives in Blenheim, and Ethel did the same thing, put it on his computer, blew it up, and as it was blowing up, he leant back in his chair and said, oh, this is a site of major Maori customary occupation. And when I asked him why, he said, well, the whare sites are all very obvious in, in the lines that you often find them, but those garden those are garden lines. As they cleared the par site, they would clear the stones, and we're not quite sure what they delineate, whether it was delineating crops... Or delineating hafu or Varno interests, but it's a common pattern, evidently, for archaeologists. And uh, so that was quite neat. And
0: um, was and Margie convinced? That's the issue.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh? Well, she's she's very <laughs> very grudging at giving any um, any pat on the back. Her
0: people are not from that area.
1: No, no, she's uh, Tararowa Taupōti yeah. from up north. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. But of course, she encourages any interest in Maori Maoriism that uh, that I want to pursue.
0: When you when you write a a, a book of revisionist history, it, it, such as this is, do Ngati Porou or people from Ngati Porou say that can't be right? You know, we know what happened. Uh,
1: look, I. I I suspect they wouldn't say that. Uh, be, uh, the reason I say that is because there was a chap Tuta Niho, Niho who uh, was also wrote an account uh, who was with Nati Pero and uh, uh, Rangatira. Niho Niho. Yeah, and he he his account coincides uh, with what I understand happened and uh, and the other thing too is that Ropara Wahawa wrote a 70 odd page account in Māori of uh, uh, both their accounts were in Te Māori and uh, uh, his account when it comes to Marai Tahi is tiny it's, it, and it's almost apologetic and his report to McLean the Minister of Defence at the time when they got out of the bush was almost apologetic we, we didn't manage to capture it to Korti he, he made no claim of releasing the whakatui uh, Wahawa. And did or Nior. So uh-huh. uh, I, I don't think there is a different version.
0: It must be very satisfactory for you to clarify these issues, to get to the bottom of these issues. Uh, well, it
1: it was amazing for for me, and uh, and I know for the chaps who came in the bush on the walks with me and um, Stuart Spicer and who did the artwork and Dave Storley and other long-standing. Because you couldn't of mine. have done
0: it if you hadn't tromped the area, right? Uh,
1: right. Yes. Yeah. No. You you had to. Be able to prove that uh, that the Austin diary was absolutely accurate, which it was. Wow.
0: Hmm. So was Porter a bad guy or was he just... No, he wasn't
1: a bad guy. He was an extremely brave soldier and an extremely experienced soldier. And uh, there's an appendix four in the book because um, after the book was written, I found amongst my papers a uh, an account by Gilbert Mayer who was a contemporary of Porter's.
0: And you've written a book about Gilbert Mayer yes, already. Yes, yes. Yeah. And,
1: and uh, Mayer was... Writing to James Cowan, the, the famous New Zealand military historian, in 1923, the year after, or 22, I think, the year after Porter died, um, saying, basically recounting a number of incidents, including Maraitai, I believe, where Porter exaggerated and, and basically saying to Cowan, why did he do this? Why did he gild the lily? Because he was such a brave soldier. He didn't need to. Um, but it was interesting and that's why I persuaded the publisher to put yeah. that in as an Is appendix all? Right, Thanks Ron <laughs> yeah. So
0: another appendix goes in Exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's your next book going to be?
1: Well I haven't really got a project as such because uh, there's a whole host of thoughts swirling around but essentially I want to write down uh, my own experiences etc for my grandchildren yeah. and, and that won't be published so uh, that might take me Six months, nine months, whatever I've started it a bit it sends if I read it to them it sends them Maggie says it sends them to sleep No which it no does. you do that
0: you <laughs> do that you write it are you um, still going tramping
1: yeah yeah and indeed um, planning a uh, historic trip that'll take about um seven or ten days or whatever where are you uh, going? Somewhere in the Uduwera. Mm.
0: That's um, your favourite area?
1: It is. I live in the South Island. I, I, st- I love the mountains in the South Island too, but uh, the Uduwera just has a special appeal, particularly nowadays because I know the history and, uh, and, uh, and that just brings the countryside alive. Yeah. Mm.
0: You, so when you're walking, you're, you're observing and you're imagining and you're superimposing what you know already on the landscape.
1: It's probably more that when you're researching and reading, instead of you're it, remembering the you're, champ. You Yes, you can absolutely visualise how steep the ridges are, or how deep the gorges are, or how long they are, and mm. what it's like when it's raining, and uh, you know where, where's your next place to camp, etc. You know, so it, it's more that it brings the written word alive. In.
0: Landscape is history. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming to the studio, Ron Crosby, whose book is called. Tecote's last foray. It's the story of Tecote's 1870 abduction of 218 people taking them into the Wirewaker Gorge.